So happy morning, everyone. With Mark, I greet you. Any of you joining us online, welcome to Heart City Church. I'm Joel, and I'm thankful to serve you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles, on your devices, or in your bulletins to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5. Verse 5. Today, friends, John is going to lay out a foundational truth at the heart of the gospel message, a foundational truth. And I really want this truth to impact us this morning. So I'm going to first tell the story of the day Jesus went on a fishing trip. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus, standing on the beach, he saw a fisherman washing his nets in a boat. So he climbed aboard. And Jesus told this fisherman, Put your boat out in the deep water and cast out your nets. And the fisherman said, Look, Jesus, uh, they're not biting. I've been out all night long. But you're the master, so to humor you, I'm going to give you a free uh, fish charter. We'll head out. So they went out in the deep. The fishermen cast the nets. Do you know what happened? Every last fish in the whole lake jumped into his nets. <laughs> nets were breaking. Fish were flopping. The boat starts sinking. It was absolutely an incredible scene. They're freaking out. Another boat has to come out. Their partner's to help get all the fish into that boat, to take in the greatest catch of all time at Lake Gennesaret. Can you imagine how happy this fisherman was? He went from hours of futile casting to the greatest jackpot ever in a single cast. You think he was saying, holy mackerel! No. He was saying, holy Jesus! Luke 5.8 tells us this fisherman's response. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. This is not a response of joy, even of gratitude. It is a response of total terror. Why? Because it dawns on him as every last fish in the sea obeyed him, Obey Jesus that he is face to face with undiluted deity. He's in the presence of perfect purity. He is beholding the holy on his boat. Outright righteousness. And now he sees himself as well. And he despairs. He sees what a sinner he is and how unworthy he is to have Jesus on his boat. Which is why he tells the Lord Jesus to leave him. By the way, this fisherman's name was Simon Peter. Simon Peter. Friends, this is the normal response of men when they encounter holy God in the Bible. Isaiah finds himself before the throne of God, and he falls on the ground writhing and cursing himself. Job covers his mouth and repents in dust and ashes at the arrival of the Almighty. Beholding the holy... Habakkuk, his knees begin to tremble and he says his bones turn to jelly. Friends, John actually witnessed Peter's response. He saw that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And on the final day, when we stand before God and all is revealed, we will know that for sure. 
in, in, in clarity we've never had. But friends, the good news goes out today. Jesus says to each and every one of you this morning what he said to Peter. Do not be afraid. Follow me. Let's pray we do. Righteous Father, we want to thank you for sending your son. We ask and pray that we may believe in him. Grant that faith that we might receive and obey his word. And we pray that you'll send your spirit to search us and know us and see if there be any grievous way in us that we might be children of light in our day of great darkness. Our time is short. Our need is great. Have mercy, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So last week we began this new epistle and John opened his letter by saying that eternal life had come in Jesus Christ. John and others had seen, heard, and touched God come in our flesh. And you can just imagine his pen was just leaping for joy as he wrote, wrote this. You, we have fellowship with Father God and with Jesus. And you too can have that same fellowship with God and with Jesus. And I can't wait till everyone knows so that our joy can be complete. You know, I get the impression that John would be surprised by joyless Christians. The Son of God came, died, and was raised so that we might have access to God and eternal life. Christian, you are a never-ending eternal being, and you belong to a new and fuller creation. Your whole life is in front of you. That's how we have to see John's message. That's why John says later, do not love the world or the things of the world, because this dying world can only disappoint those who have an eternal destiny. To help us remember that, let's recite our verse of the month, which you find at the bottom of the page. Let us recite together what I hope we'll memorize this month. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Today, friends, Jesus is calling us, like Peter, to be his students, to give up godless notions for good news to abandon the inadequate, and to embrace the eternal fellowship with holy God. Will you respond to that call? Will you respond to what God's calling you to do today?
Peter did. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Follow me. Hmm. Actually, that might surprise us if we think about Peter's response. You realize Peter's abandoning all at the highlight of his career? (laughs) Peter just had the greatest day of his life. A boatload of fish not only means a boatload of cash, but Peter's a fisherman. He lives to fish. You know any fishermen? (laughs) What sort of glory do they live for? I was just talking to somebody two days ago up in the UP. Caught a muskie. It was glorious. What sort of stories do fishermen tell? And now think about this. Who could ever compete with Peter's fish story? (laughs) Peter can say, oh yeah, I cast out one time and as a result they had to restock the whole lake. (laughs) Peter the preeminent will forever be uh, number one on the Gennesaret wall of fish fame, right? This is all right, comparable to someone like Mike to a golfer who went out and pulls off 10 birdies, 7 eagles, and a hole in one and then says, I'm giving up my golf clubs. But Peter sees that glory, what he just had, this great day, and he's disappointed. Do you hear it? The profit and the fame are inadequate. It's empty. Why? Because he realizes at this moment he is a sinner, that he should have been aware of so much more. He sees in Jesus a greater glory he has been blind to that even the fish were aware of. Maybe Peter could live up to these standards he set for himself, but now he sees they're far, far, far too low. There's a greater standard by which his life would be measured. All because he got the message that John proclaims to you and I in verse 5. This is the message we heard from him, Jesus, and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Friends, the good news to our world is that God is light and there's no darkness in him. Here is big topic number one for John. Big topic number one. God is light and he has zero darkness. This means that there's an almighty being to whom we owe all our existence and he's perfectly holy. He's a God of absolute truth, which means as our creator, His universe operates under a moral standard that he set. It's black and white, right and wrong. And John's going to actually explore this for three chapters, all the way up to chapter 4, verse 8. And then we'll move on to a second big topic, God is love. We probably knew that one, right? That's a verse even non-Christians know. Most Christians see God is love as the message of 1 John. If you ask them, what's the message of 1 John? They know it's God is love, right? We see there's two headings here, God is light and God is love. And John starts with, God is light. That he wants, that God wants us, the God we want to have fellowship with has morally perfect. That is John's message. God is light. And he's perfect in every way. I don't think John is with the program of our day. John is not very seeker sensitive, is he? Most of the church promotions that you see start off by telling you, God is love. Come to church. Why doesn't John start off, you are love because God is love? That's a true statement, isn't it? Joel, why not start off with love? John, why not start off with love? Here's why. If John would start off with love, folks then and today would not get the message. They'd get it all wrong. We'd think of God's love being like Billy Joel's. 
Don't go changing to try and please me. You've never let me down before. I'll take the good times. I'll take the bad times. Here it is. I love you just the way you are. Folks today want a God who loves but doesn't want or expect any changes in you. But that is not who God is. And he would not be a good God because that is not loving. And you parents know this, right? You wouldn't raise your child with zero expectations. Would you say to them, do whatever you want. You'll never let me down. Go ahead and just screw up your whole life. No. You train your child as best you can because you love them so that they will live well and live to bless others. How much more does our Heavenly Father do that? Who wants to make us holy so that we can shine to a world that's dying. God is light and he compels us to be children of light. To look to be pleasing to him going forward. Paul actually writes in Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. John begins, God is light, to show us that God's love is a holy love or a sanctifying love. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. The good news is that God is light, and by being in fellowship with him, you'll learn right and wrong. You are and will be freed from all the sin that deceives and destroys you and others in our world. In his light, as John said, you will find life. You see, being a Christian, being in fellowship is not just believing in God. Even the demons believe in God. Being in fellowship means believing and sharing in his light. And when we become light, guess what? You and I can do mattering things today. We will impact our world for good. We will leave our world a better place if we learn to be light, children of light. So do you want to know God and live to be light? That's the question for us today as we look at this text. Do you want to know God better, come into fellowship and be light? John gives us three tests of sanctification to help us know God and to share in his light. And I divided them up by verses in the bulletin. Each one, you'll notice, begins with a, if we say, and if what follows then is true of you, you've just failed the test. However, there's a second if that follows, and that is the good news you can embrace and undo that godly no, godless notion you followed before. So let's look at test number one, test number one, starting in verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The godless notion is to claim fellowship with God while you walk in darkness. If I profess I'm in a relationship with holy God, but my life doesn't match, I've failed the test. What does my life look like? What does your life look like? Do I gossip? Do I watch trash on TV? Do I run after things I shouldn't? I'm always looking out for number one, me. If so, you know what John says? 
Liar, liar, pants on fire. You do not practice the truth, which means you're not living as a child of light. You're wearing a mask. You can fool others for a while, but you're not fooling God. And one day that mask will come off. This attitude is called antinomianism. It basically means anti-law, lawlessness. It's ignoring the holy standards that God established because God is light. Yet, oh, I'm all good because I'm under grace. Yay for grace. Sadly, many, many practice this. There's a German poet named Heinrich Hein. While on his deathbed, he was asked by a priest, are you concerned about your sin, your sinful living? And he said, God will forgive me. It's his job. How do you think he'll fare? Test number one asks us, what is our response to God sending his only begotten beloved son to pay for your sins on the cross? So that you would be forgiven all your law breaking. Is your response free from the law, happy condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission? Or is your response gratitude and compelling you by his grace to then walk in the light of God's standards because he's freed you from the power of sin? And yes, when we fail, that's okay because John says the precious blood continues to cleanse us. Luther wrote, if we are beset by sins, no harm is done. The blood of Christ was not shed for the devil or for the angels. It was shed for sinners. And this holy way of living isn't just for me and my fellowship with God, which is true. But John says, actually, it establishes a holy connection with each other. We walk together in holy living, encouraging each other, helping each other, praying for each other, holding forth. I'm struggling with this temptation, this sin, and working together. That was test number one. Let's move on to test number two, verses eight and nine. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Test number two is asking, do you minimize your sin potential? Maybe you even claim sinless perfection. By the way, this isn't uncommon. I dialogued with a couple people last week who were at a local event where over a thousand people attended to see this famous evangelistic speaker who claims God gave him not long ago a pure heart. And for years now, he has never violated it and has never soiled his hands. He claims that. And he says, you can do the same. I can love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength from morning until night, wake up in the morning doing the same. I can fulfill the first commandment. He says that. John says that he's in sustained self-deception. The Bible clearly says everyone here is a rotten sinner. John is saying that admitting you're awful is actually step one to fellowship with God. Admitting you're a mess is the first step towards God. Now I say that and I know what happens in a room like this. We lean in one of two directions. Some of you are saying, Joel, if you only knew how bad things going on in my brain right now. (sighs) You know your sin and you beat yourself up all the time. I'm going to get to you in a minute. Hold on. Others, you will never claim perfection. You're kind of scoffing at that evangelist who was out there last week in Chipshawana. But there's a legalist that quickly rises up in your living room all the time. 
You know the Bible says our righteousness, our righteousness is filthy rags before God. But you don't really believe that. And John expects you'll think that. He says it's actually it's normal for us to deceive ourselves. That's a normal thing. It's normal to think we can have fellowship with God, go straight to him because we're not that bad off. That's a normal thing. You say, John, I'm not perfect, but I'm not near as bad as so many people around me, so many people I see. You hear about somebody being selfish. They come up to you. Do you hear how encouraged this person is? And you say, well, I'd never. Oh, my goodness. You ever say that? Friend, that attitude, that posture is actually keeping you from fellowship with God. That's what John is saying. You ever see a crime on TV, on the news, and you say, how could anybody do such a thing? You ever say that? You know the reason that that bothers you is because they're human like you. And you don't believe the Bible's teaching on total depravity. Tim Keller, I think, uses a really helpful illustration here of an acorn. He says, consider an acorn. It is so small, yet it has great potential. In fact, inside an acorn you find an ocean of wood. An ocean of wood. From one acorn, a giant tree, 100 meters tall, can grow with thousands more acorns. Which means there's thousands more giant oaks. And more acorns. And more oaks. And more acorns. Total depravity teaches us that we have the potential for great evil. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be, but it does mean we have great potential for evil. And you're saying, well, Joel, then why haven't I burst forth into a forest? Oh, because God is so gracious and kept your acorn from its potential. Your acorn, God set it on pavement. (laughs) And it could do nothing and eventually decompose. And day after day, he puts your acorn on pavement or someplace where it finds no nourishment. The only difference between you and the sinner that you can't possibly understand and why they did that thing is by God's grace, your sin was never exposed to a fertile situation. I know some of you still don't believe that. I know that because I've said this many times. So what I want you to do, maybe you don't want to embarrass yourself and do it now, but do this. Draw yourself a picture of an acorn. You got a bulletin. Make a little note for yourself. Draw an acorn and write Matthew 5, 22 to 28 underneath it. And set that note on a mirror or on your refrigerator. Put it in your wallet and then just wait, okay? Just put it there. Put it away for a while. And one day... You're going to run into someone or something that's really going to tick you off. Or maybe you're going to face a temptation unlike you've ever felt before. You're going to feel this incredible intensity inside you, something burning. Maybe you'll even act out a little bit. And then maybe you'll go home to the fridge and you'll notice that note there. And you'll think, why in the world did Joel give me that crazy acorn illustration? And then read Matthew 5 and see how Jesus said that to be angry is the beginning of murder. To just be a little ticked off at someone is the beginning of murder. To look at a woman with lust in your eyes, in God's sight, that is the same as adultery. Praise God then at that point because you haven't bursted forth. And when that really hits you, just sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the song that saved a wretch like me, and you'll sing it with new, new understanding. Because you'll see yourself and you'll see God in his grace in a whole new way. Okay, back to you who lean the other way. Who are freaking out now because I'm like, oh, this acorn potential in me. Look at verse 9. And the forgiveness and cleansing that comes every time you sin. Remember Simon Peter? Who told Jesus to leave him because he was such a rotten sinner? 
As soon as he did that, what did Jesus do? Come on, you're with me now. We're going to be really tight now. Do you see what happens? Confession, we have sin, and admitting particular ones we have, this is how we pass the test. That's why we actually have a confession of sins every week. And I hope you're doing that every day. When you confess your sins, you're actually taking a step towards God, and what you discover is, He's already moved a step towards you and holding his grace forth. It's impossible, friends, for God to turn away any confessor because God is faithful. God is faithful. How do you like that for assurance of eternal life? Every time you move towards God when you're feeling awful about yourself, there you take a hold of that, eternal life. Let's move on to test number three. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Friends, this is our culture, and it's influencing each and every one of us. Our culture fails the test by rejecting the notion that we're a nation of sinners, and we're in desperate need of God's help. Let me ask you, when's the last time you watched the news or read a headline of some atrocity that happened, and sin was mentioned as a contributing factor? When's the last time you saw that on the news? Our culture is sin silent and has been for years. Why, Joel? Because unlike our forefathers, our culture has, takes man as the starting point. It takes man as the starting point. Man is the measure of all things. We can solve our own problems. Who needs God? Most of our neighbors got up this morning with zero thought of God. That's why they're not in church this morning. John's starting point is God. How Jesus came in our flesh and how his message is that God is light. God says you have sinned. God sent Jesus to be our atoning sacrifice. And if you deny this, you're calling God a liar and his word is not in you. This is failing the test, of course. Some of us don't appreciate the gospel. We don't find it to be good news or really good news. Because we have too high a view of ourselves. We're too man-centered. Some of us think we just have automatic access to God. I talk to people all the time. Oh, I talk to God all the time. I pray to Him. I mean, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I have access to Almighty God? Do you know who I am? I mean, that's what they're saying. Why do you think God put two angels with blazing swords at the gate of Eden? Because sinners cannot come into God's presence and live. Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? Any of you want me to pray for you and come in the name of Joel? Do you see that Christianity is actually the humblest of all religions? But it's also good news, the best news of all. John gives us the final but if. My little children... Wonderful to hear little children screaming right now. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, here's the last but if, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Every other religion out there says that you have to do it all on your own. Your good deeds, your rituals. Be a good person on your own. Make your own path to heaven, to nirvana, to paradise, whatever the religion says. 
And you have to carry that burden. You have to climb the mountain on your own and hope you make it. Only Christianity says you are responsible to be and do good, but you can't. But God provided a way by simply believing, believing in the son he sent. John says, I wrote you so that you won't sin. He's saying be responsible. But if you do sin, which we will, we have an advocate in heaven. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one who opens up the door to glory and to joy. And this scene is so important for us to take in. I'm actually going to do two weeks on this. This is a scene of heaven looking down on us, okay? What do you picture is going on up there in heaven when you sin? When you realize you've gotten into it again? What do you think is going on up there in heaven at the throne room? I know some of us, actually I talked to someone recently, they said, oh, if I walk through the doors of your church, Joel, lightning would strike. Ever heard anybody say that? Some folks feel very little confidence in approaching God. Sadly, some Christians do as well because they got the picture of heaven all wrong. They, uh, yes, God is light, but God is not looking to fire lightning bolts at us. That gets God all wrong from day one. Go back all the way to the beginning. God did not say to Adam and Eve, the day you sin, I will destroy you. No. What did he say? The day you sin, you will die. You see the difference? God was not waiting on us to fail so he could smash us. God wanted Adam and Eve to stay in the light and to live. To know him through obedience that they could believe and trust him that what he said was best for them and attain eternal life. And when they didn't, what did he do? He then sent his son to pay for their sins and for your and mine. His death on the cross, his resurrection. And John now says, Jesus is in heaven. Here's the scene, our advocate. Now the Greek here is parakletos. It means Jesus, I'll just, I'm only getting part of this. We'll come back to the rest of it next week. Jesus is like a lawyer up there pleading our case. He's speaking on our behalf to the Father. And many of us, here's how we see the scene, if we understand that. You have Father God, the judge, and you have the Son, Jesus, our lawyer. And the Father looks down and he says, Son, did you see what Irvin did for like the tenth time today? <laughs> Jesus says, Father, please forgive Joel. He messed up again. Maybe he'll do better next time. And the father looks at his son, who he loves, and he says, okay, son, I'll be merciful to Joel one more time. And I'm happy about this, because it's a rigged court, right? It's rigged for me. I've got the son of the judge appealing on my side. This shouldn't happen in any court, right? <laughs> but if that's the scene I have, I'll still be anxious later, right? I need more than mercy in a rigged court, because I mess up a lot. How about you? And the more I understand how God is light as I walk, the more I see my sin, the more I see my motives. My sins keep adding up over the course of my life, and at some point, I'm going to have a real bad day. And then what's the scene going to be for me? <laughs> Father looks down, gives a big, big sigh, throws up his hands and says, Son, I love you. I love you a lot. But, you know, he's done this now a thousand times. And I've kind of rethought the whole Irvin thing. He's really a mess. I give you a bad gift, all right? I think some Christians live with this discouragement. I think it's why some people walk away from the faith. 
friends, that's not the scene. John calls Jesus our advocate. He's also Jesus the righteous and our propitiation. The righteous and our propitiation. God requires righteousness. And Jesus holds up exhibit A in front of God the Father. Here's the court case. Here's my righteousness, Father. Father, I already provided for Joel and for Mike and Tammy and Dallas. I provided them my perfect life. I obeyed everything you ever wanted perfectly just for him, for Joel. Oh, and then Jesus holds up exhibit B. His propitiation. What is that? I know that's not a word we know, right? We don't use that today. It's a couple things. It's both the removal of guilt, the cleansing of all our sins with his blood, but it's also appeasement for the crime I committed. It's full payment of the debt. Jesus being the propitiation for our sins means this. Justice has been satisfied. And Jesus, that means he's the atoning sacrifice. And notice John adds, by way, his sins cover the whole world because he's God. One person could maybe pay the debt of one person, but Jesus is infinite God. That means the check clears when Jesus offers himself. That's something I think we need to realize. You realize our lawyer argues for justice, not mercy. All the difference in the world when you get that. This means it's an open and shut case. When I screw up, Jesus goes to the Father and says, I'm here representing Joel. Father, you demand justice, and I do too. And I have an irrefutable case here in front of you. And Jesus holds forth his nail-pierced hands. He says, Father, look back at Calvary. I've already satisfied justice. I love Jesus because I know he paid for every last sin of mine that I will ever commit going forward. And I know that God the Father will never demand double payment because what his son offered was more than, more than sufficient for each and every one of us. Justice was done for all who come to Jesus and ask him to be their advocate. That's why I skipped that last part in verse 9. God is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. Friends, justice has been served in the saving of you and me, and it would be unjust for God to do anything other than to bring you and I into glory and to experience the joy, the greatest joy of all eternal life. That means, and I'm closing, please listen. The moment you first take hold of Jesus, verdict is in. The verdict is in. The gavel has come down and declared you fully forgiven. You're a spirit-filled son or daughter of the king. And you're as righteous as Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And it makes all the difference in the world when you live from the verdict and not for the verdict. If you're trying to achieve a verdict from God by your performance you're going to be a nervous wreck. But if you perform everything you do going forward because the verdict's already in on you, you can live to be light and to love. And you'll find joy in all that you do because you know that. We'll come back to this next week, but let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for sending your son. <laughs> we who are far from you and never could come before you we can now pray and lift our hearts up to you because we know who's sitting at your right hand, who's praying with and for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for offering your life as a full sacrifice for all of our sins and for making us perfect and continuing to make us perfect. So we do ask that you'll continue 
to send your spirit, Father, that we might be renewed in the whole image of man as you wanted him to be and as he has become in Jesus Christ, that we might die more and more to sin and live unto righteousness. Help us, Father. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.